Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Shane Ross has been a singular figure in Irish politics for more than three decades. A former stockbroker, man about town and business editor of the Sunday Independent in its colourful heyday, he was also a senator for Trinity College, like his father before him. In 2011, he made the jump into the mainstream of national politics, winning a seat in the Dáil for Dublin South in the general election that followed the EU IMF bailout. By the 2016 election, he was the de facto leader of the Independent Alliance, an affiliation of independent TDs, councillors and candidates that was to take the historic step of entering government with Fine Gael as part of a minority administration. It was a tumultuous time in government, punctuated by disputes, backstabbing and brinkmanship, which culminated in the loss of his doll seat at the election earlier this year. Now Ross has written his account of his time in government, arousing the fury of his former partners in government and providing the rest of us with a window into how government, or at least that government, works behind the scenes. Shane, thanks for joining me today. Let me say at the outside that political junkies and we've a lot of them in this country, people who follow politics on the day-to-day basis, will absolutely love this book. It is indiscreet. It is full of anecdotes. You get a real sense of being inside the room for it. And of course, it is immediate. We are discussing events in the very recent past, up to uh, and including references to the golf gate, albeit that was after you departed government. We'll come on to talk about some specifics, but at, at the start, the impression I got from it is that just looking at the book as a whole and the story that it tells, that you greatly enjoyed the ringside seat of being in the room after so many years of observing from outside. Uh, But I'm not sure you really kind of took to the dreary and detailed business of government with quite as much relish. Or am I being unfair to you? You're not not being unfair at all. Your your imagination of what happens in government beforehand is completely different from what it's like when you get in. And obviously, the media portrays it as something exciting, glamorous decisions all the time, fighting wars, etc. Most of it is actually uh, briefing, long sessions, long meetings with people who aren't in cabinet, not cabinet meeting meetings with delegations, and sort of run-of-the-mill stuff, which you don't expect to have. Now, that isn't such good fun. No, it's not so interesting, because you have to absorb long briefs on subjects which you're not familiar with, uh, and which, in some cases, you're probably not particularly interested in, but you have to do it, and it's the dreary stuff. And that was that was challenging, and it was difficult. It's not that I didn't do it. I did do it. I used to spend you know, two days um, mugging up for, for questions uh, in the Doyle. That's basically a learning process, making sure that there are no gaps in your knowledge 
you're not making decisions, you're not moving things any forward in any way, you're reading briefing notes all the time. And that's not, it's not enjoyable, but it's something you have to do. But it wasn't something which I kind of expected. It, the, if, you're, if you're talking about entertainment and the ringside, the, the ringside seats, yeah, that's, that's something which is an absolutely electrifying experience. And of course, being in cabinet, seeing the nuances and the, what people say and how they behave and how they decide things is something completely different because it's, it's real things happening, which are really affecting real people's lives. That's, that really matters. Doing the learning, it's a bit like being back at school. and It's, uh, it's got to be done, but uh, I wasn't particularly good at it and I didn't enjoy it very much, but I did it. I know, I know, I think you wrote, you know, that I think you did write, you wrote stuff saying, you know, I didn't read my briefs properly, etc., which you were told by, which you said you were told by, by civil servants, which I believe properly. Um, it must have been apparent to some people that I wasn't enjoying one part as much as the other, but I was doing it. The criticism that was sometimes uh, made of you, and you'll be aware, of course, that there was criticisms made of you all the time by your partners in government. And we'll go on in, in, in a few minutes to talk about that relationship that you had with Fine Gael, which was very difficult, I think, for a lot of the time. But but specifically on that, 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 that point that we raised uh, a moment ago, I think part of the difficulties that you had with Fine Gael is that they always suspected that Shane Ross, the journalist, and Shane Ross, the troublemaking journalist, he was sitting at the table as well as Shane Ross, the politician and cabinet minister. I mean, people would often say that, of course, Shane is taking notes for his, for his book, you know, it turns out they were right, weren't they? Yeah, well, they were half right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 I, I never made any bones about the fact that I might write a book. I mean, I wasn't actually decided on it until I until I actually lost office, and then I said, "This is something to do. I can do it." Um, so they were aware of that, but but I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, and I never took off my journalistic hat. I never took off my journalistic mind. In fact, the mindset, which and it, it's covered in the book, I think very, very extensively. The mindset under which we went into cabinet was almost one, and I speak, I think, for Finian McGrath as well here, but you speak more for himself. We were almost still in opposition when we were in cabinet because we'd all been, I've been a journalist for so long and a very critical journalist of, of various things that were going on in cabinet, in government. And Finian had been in opposition as I had for many, many, many years. We went in with that and we almost regarded it, relations weren't good. We almost regarded it as our job to go in there and keep Finian Gale in line you know, stop them doing things that we didn't want them to do. So the atmosphere was very, very difficult. And you're right, I think all the time I was sitting there with a journalist's eye and saying, what's going on here? What's going on there? And of course, I was covering my backside as well, because I'd said a lot of things in opposition as a journalist, which I honestly could not change as quickly as I would like. And the opposition had a field day with me uh, month after month, quoting back at me, you know, committees and the Doyle, this is what you said, and they'd read it all out and have a have a have good fun. So I never escaped from that. You know, we were we were not we were not fully paid up members of the government for a, a long time. We didn't think like ministers. I think that, that's absolutely true, and that made Finney get very suspicious. I, I guess as well. Was it a mistake for you? I mean, obviously, you got off on a very difficult foot with Enda Kenny. Um, when you described him as a political corpse. And that's been well rehearsed. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time talking about that. But do you think it was uh, a mistake 
for yourself and Finney and you, and you were the guys, Finney and McGrath, you were the guys at Cabinet. You were the not the only independents at Cabinet, but you were the only independent alliance members at Cabinet. And I think he, it's probably fair to say he was your closest political ally the whole way through. You and John Hagen, yeah. yeah. But do you think it was a mistake not to leave your journalistic hat at the door, not to try and foster better relations with your cabinet colleagues uh, from the start and to go into cabinet meetings, and especially in that early period, because I remember covering it in that summer of 2016 and every week there seemed to be a threat that the government might collapse by the following Tuesday in the face of a private member's motion or something. Yeah, I think in retrospect, it took us longer than it should to think like cabinet ministers. Um, you, you, and if I went in as a journalist, which I probably did still, thinking as a journalist, it's a bit difficult to change your mindset very, very quickly. You'd sit there and you look at these people who you've been critical of and what they've been doing for a long time. And we'd had a, we'd had a very tortuous programme for government negotiations. They weren't friendly. Um, we, were the, we were the last person standing. Fine Gael didn't want us as partners, really. They would have much preferred to fight the Greens or, or the Labour Party or anybody with a bit of party discipline there. And we didn't have that party discipline. We had we were individuals. So I was it would have been, you know, it, it, it was hard, but the negotiations had been very tough. And negotiating with Fine Gael was very, very tough and very difficult. And personal relations did not improve during that period. They got worse, if anything. And it was all rushed at the end. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned the political corpse. I didn't help it by saying that. And it, and it took offence, and, and maybe rightly so. So we went in, atmosphere pretty toxic. We went in because they went in with us as a last resort. They did. They didn't, would have preferred anybody else. Uh, we went in with them in the same sort of atmosphere. So on day one, we were not really in partnership. We were still we were still sitting across the table waiting for the ambush, which is a very unhealthy way to go. Now, so it was a mistake in that sense, but we adjusted over. You know, it, it's it's well really it's well told in the book how how Andy and I kind of got to trust each other, uh, which was great. But it took it got took about six or eight months, and you're right. I mean, the government nearly fell in the first few weeks. I mean, really was very close to falling. I thought that part of the the problem, and I I think this is maybe one of the things that's not so much reflected in the book. And don't worry, we come on to talk about what is reflected in the book, but that the group went in. I, I thought that you demonstrated a kind of a great political foresight in putting together the group beforehand and putting them in a position where you had a group of people, albeit a disparate group of independents, that were able to be the Fine Gael last resort, uh, as it were. I, I, I thought that demonstrated great, great foresight. But it, I, I was never quite sure what it was for. And I'm afraid it may have been more just kind of switched on opportunism rather than, uh, you know, rather than a political vision. Because looking back at the, you know, the, the, the principles that the Independent Alliance espoused, many of them were just kind of attitudes and rather than thought out policy positions. And I wonder if part of the problem in that early stage uh, in, in government, which was to go on to recur afterwards, was that it was difficult to figure out what the independence, what the independent alliance was for. And consequently, you, other than simply being there, 
And of course, you each had your pet projects, which we we'll go on to talk about. And Finian, uh, uh, you know, Finian had his views of disability. Waterford Hospital is very important to uh, to Halligan. But you were essentially reacting to Fine Gael's policy priorities rather than pursuing in any coherent way your own joined up policy platform. And, and that's part of what the problem was. Yeah, but we, we weren't a political party and we there were two reasons for that. We didn't want to be. We were used to be independents and we couldn't have been. We couldn't have imposed the sort of discipline because we came from so many different political backgrounds. I mean, you, you wouldn't have thought that, and I refer to this all the time, that John Halligan and I would be able to actually unite on many policies. There he is, Workers' Party background, and there's our former stockbroker. Not a likely combination, but we actually got on. First of all, personally, we... We, we got on like a house on fire. That helps enormously, personal relationships. But we actually found quite a lot of common common ground as well. And there were difficulties all, all along. But one of the principles we put down was and was this. In the, and it wasn't fulfilled totally, but, but it was an ambition. Was that independents can be responsible ministers. We wanted to go into government. The other independents stayed out of our way. We didn't get all, all the independents by any manner of means. We didn't even get the majority of them. We got a huge number of councillors. We wanted to show, first of all, that independents could be responsible ministers and good ministers in government, that they weren't beyond the pale. And secondly, that we could do it. And I think over the, over the four-year period, we probably proved that. Over the first six months, the sceptics, um, and you, I think you were one of them, uh, were saying, you know, I told you, so this is, this is a group of of a motley crew who just got together, get cabinet seats, and that's the end of it. And they won't last very long. And it took us a while to to do that. But I don't think it's uh, it's fair to say it was impossible that, that that we had nothing that united us. I I think of specifically, and it's something which I think, it, if I may say something about it, because I don't think it's something we we kind of broadcast about very loudly because it doesn't seem to have very much interest for a lot of people. We virtually outlawed cronyism. Uh, while we were there. We said we are fed up with cronyism in, in politics. There was a cronyistic scandals in, uh, which is people appointing their powers to top jobs, basically, uh, in, in all governments before we came in. And we said, okay, we're going to put an end, we're going to put an end, we're going to put an end to this. That was the top thing in our charter when we, when we came out. Uh, not an appointment that I can remember went through the cabinet while I was there and Finian was there and the others were there that you could say that's him picking his power because he's a party crony and we're promoting for that reason. That actually ended, apart from the judges, which I'm sure you will come on to later, it ended. And in my own department, that we changed the whole system of how a minister appointed people to semi-state bodies. And I never interfered. We set up an interview process uh, and I never interfered bar once. And I can tell you about that. And with, with the selection, that was made and the recommendations made to me by the civil servants who did the interviews and came out with it. I did it once on a, on a, when there was a blatant gender balance, which was so embarrassing, we had to, we really had to take a woman that was a first and second. I went for the second choice, it was a woman. But otherwise, that ended. And you will notice that during the, during that four-year period, those names that came to government uh, were not identified. There was no, there was no crony scandal at that time because they were just, they knew we were watching them and, and there would be trouble if that happened. That's something which I think is a curse in, in Irish society. And it's something I think which we certainly temporarily resolve. Well, you didn't, you didn't, I think. I mean, there was one of the lengthy passages in the book about the appointment of Andrew McDool 
um, who was a former advisor to Enda Kenny and who surf- resurfaced recently uh, as a, a nominee for one of the government's nominees for the post of European Commissioner, having spent the previous four years uh, at the European Investment Bank. And it was his appointment to the Investment Bank. And again, you, you, you detail this in the in the book that you objected to the appointment um, uh, initially. And so a process was contrived, which duly took place at your insistence, and the process produced as the government's nominee, Andrew McDougall. And I wonder if your crusade against cronyism, I don't know if you use those terms yourself, but I bet you did. I wonder if your crusade against cronyism really only changed the form rather than the substance of government appointments. I think it may or may not revert back now. I think you may be right in the new government to they'll share it out a bit, you know, like they did before in coalitions before. Um, and you're right about the Andrew, the Andrew McDowell one was a, was a seminal one. And that I, it's, I'm glad you brought that one up because that was one where they were actually trying it on. That was in the very first few weeks. Uh, and they knew what our ambition was. They, were, they actually were going to try and they were actually going to try and put that through when I was away. That was it was as bad as that. Right. And I think it was the second or third week. It was the day of the appointment of the Minister of State, anyway. I know that. And eventually I stayed uh, where I was and I decided not to go away because John was being appointed and Sean Canny. And I found they were trying to put it through at the cabinet meeting where I was going to be absent. Uh, and that was a, a real try on. It was an attempt to strip. So we did insist. I did insist. Uh, look, this isn't, without a process, they were going to do it. I mean, it was outrageous. Uh, and Andrew McDowell was, was one of the Finnegal kind of top people. And I did, I did insist with Michael with Michael Noonan. Uh, he said we negotiated a um, we negotiated we negotiated a deal whereby there was a panel set up. Uh, and I think I think I conceded too much because what it did was it gave him a choice for a few people, and up popped the name of Andrew McDowell at the end, right? And I was I was absolutely mortified, but I had I was caught. I I'd agreed to a process which came up with the. With the same result, they were much cleverer at this than than I was. I was an amateur. I didn't think this this was going to happen, but that never happened again either. And that was very early on. And they knew what my just. I mean, Michael Noonan actually said to me um, when that came to the cabinet. He said, "Look, please don't call a vote on this. I haven't seen a vote in cabinet for thirty years, I think, or something, you know." And I I wasn't going to call a vote on it then because I'd agreed to the process. But they knew then that the game was up. We weren't going to we weren't going to allow this sort of thing to. Thing to, thing to go on. Having agreed to the process, I was caught. And it didn't happen again. And, you know, after that, I noticed people, a lot of ministers would check with me. They'd ring me beforehand and say, I want to appoint so-and-so tomorrow uh, to such and such. Are you okay with that? They usually, a lot of them would come because they didn't want to fuss about it. So I think, I think, I mean, maybe not 100% of the time because some, one or two may have got through. But I think we pretty well put a stop to that, actually. And uh, now it may revert. But now we've got a situation whereby a lot of departments are, I think you're using slightly different methods of selecting selecting their selecting their their appointments to boards and other lucrative positions. Not totally, and you know we'll probably see other attempts to put people into top jobs. The, the McDougall one was two hundred seventy thousand a year. I think he was paid. I mean, it was it was an outrageous an outrageous uh, try on. Now he's a guy of great ability. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Let us hasten to add that. <laughs> uh, uh, but he does happen to have been a top a top. Poncho of, of Enders, and 
that wasn't wouldn't be a complete coincidence. Well, let's let's come on to your greatest and alas failed uh, crusade against cronyism, which was, as you mentioned, the your attempts to um, uh, to change the way judges are uh, are appointed. Before we get into the the ins and outs of uh, of that, what was your motivation for that in the first place? Other than a general feeling that, you know, politicians were appointing their legal mates as uh, as judges. I remember Michael McDool, who was, I suppose, the nemesis of the bill uh, in, in the end, making some ac- accusations that this was because of a case that you had been in and that you had had an unsatisfactory outcome for. But just tell us why, you know, why did you embark on that crusade in the first place? Because it seemed to some of us looking in from the outside to be a kind of a curious target for anyone, because whatever criticisms you may make of the judiciary, I'm not sure the quality of the administration of justice has been one of the great problems in the country. No, it hasn't. Um, it, the McDool, yeah, McDool was, you know, just having mentioned McDool, mentioned that he is a lawyer and that he's a barrister and that he, he knows all the judges. And uh, he he said that he made this statement, which which was pretty rash, which was that about, you know, it was all motivated. I don't know where he got this from, but I can guess. So this is a this political charge. Uh, it was all motivated by the fact that I lost a libel case back in, I think it was 1991. I don't know. And he's absolutely correct. I did. I lost a libel action when I wrote for the Sunday Independent. Uh, and I can't remember the names of the judges. It didn't, it, 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 it cost me no thoughts. You know, when I was in the Sunday Independent at the time, they went, thank you for saying it. It wasn't considered a very bad mark to, to have... Uh, <laughs> ended up in court uh, at all. So it didn't affect my career in any way. There was no bad feeling. We lost it and that was it. And it certainly didn't motivate in any way uh, any, me, me taking on the, the, the appointment of judges many, many years later. I'd written about this for a long time, Pat. And in fact, I, I had a book called The Untouchables mm-hmm. um, written in 2011 around some, some time. And it devoted two chapters to the judiciary and how they were appointed. And I'd raised it in the Senate in my Many, many times I'd had two, I'd had bills when I was in opposition proposed about it. It was a consistent um, a gripe and mine because I thought it was so, I mean, the, the real reason was it's just wrong. The way they're appointed is wrong. Uh, and it, it is insiders appointing appointing insiders. It's wrong and it's, it's liable to, I suspect, uh, promote accidents. And it is responsible to some extent for the Gulf Gate that we've got situation at the moment. But really, what, what problem was it? designed to address it's the most opaque secret secretive undemocratic untransparent uh way of appointing people to the most important positions in the state that is the that is the problem and that is it is it is done behind closed doors with the public having no knowledge about how it happens and us as cabinet ministers even having little knowledge about what's going on and there's, no, there's nothing to be ashamed of in how, setting up a body which, is, which is, has a majority of lay, with a lay chair, uh, with lots of judges, judges on the body if you want them as well, to give, to give advice and to have a say and then have equal input, but to have a majority lay who will have 
and the confidence of the people that the judges are appointed in a transparent way. And we've got a real problem because people are not being appointed on merit. They're being appointed on the basis that there is some merit, and maybe great merit in most of them, but there's, there were wonderful articles written about it, much better than I did, identifying over a period of time who was appointed under what, under, under what, what gov government. And it's absolutely impeccable. I mean, it's, it's absolutely undeniable without compelling evidence that if you're in one party, you get in uh, when that party is in power. And when you're in another party, you don't get in during that period. That's what's happening. Doesn't mean they're bad judges. It just means that people are being excluded because they're the wrong political colour. That is a problem. You clashed first with Francis Fitzgerald uh, on uh, on this, and I remember covering it about at at, uh, at the time. And uh, I think you were, it's fair to say, in, in in frequent communication with Francis, and subsequently with her successor, Charlie Flanagan, uh, over over a period of time. Uh, uh, about this, though I got the impression that you, you, yourself and Charlie, even though you used fight on this subject and others on a regular basis, you ended up kind of having a sneaking regard for each other. Well, I liked him, and I like him still, and I think he's, I think yeah, he's probably quite angry about stuff in the book. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things in politics that you you know, this was a doable piece of legislation. And it was on his patch, and he didn't like that. Uh, in other words, he's Minister for Justice. And Frances Fitzgerald, who, you know, was was in a similar situation. She comes into she comes into office, and the biggest problem, the biggest piece of legislation which challenges her is a piece of legislation which is being motivated by the Independent Alliance and being driven by them. And she has to, because it's in the program for government, and she hated it in the program for government. She didn't want it there at all. Um, and she she um she has to champion it and push it through. And she was very, very good about it. She was much easier to deal with because she she just, I think I say, she just held her nose and got on with it because and 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 got on with it and did what was expected of her. And it I had one really amusing incident with her. And I do describe it in the book, but I, I went down with her and with Ashley Dunn, the three of us. Who was your advisor? Yeah, my advisor. Uh and and the attorney general was sitting then at the head of the table, and the other side of the table was was the three judges and the civil servants sitting all the way down the rest of the table. But I've never seen anyone less comfortable sitting beside me and Ashling Dunn than Francis Fitzgerald, who would just have died to have been on the other side of the table with George Birmingham, Finna Gale, uh, with Donald O'Donnell, who I don't think is Finn, Finn, who's no party, and um, the other, who was the other judge? Mary, uh, Mary Finley. Uh, Finnegale. And Francis just, she did her duty though. She she just got on with it. She said, this is the bill. This is what we're doing. This is how we're going to do it. And she would have just loved to have been the other side and saying, this is the reasons why we can't. Uh, and and she, But she did it. And, and you know, we pushed through that meeting. It was a very tough meeting, very difficult. Didn't achieve anything, but that, never mind. With Charlie, it was different. Charlie hated the bill. I think that's the reality. He was Minister for Justice. He also resented the fact, that, sorry to cut across you, but he also resented the fact that one of the things that you used as leverage was that you wouldn't approve judges you wouldn't agree to the cabinet decisions to uh to appoint judges unless there'd been progress at the bill now i seem to recall that that 
threat. It reminds me of uh, uh, it reminds me of trying to get my kids uh, to bed. When I say, "Well, okay, you can watch another ten minutes uh, or play another ten minutes on your Xbox, but then you have to go to bed." And then ten minutes would come and go, and then there'd be a request for another five minutes, and uh, and so forth. That you 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 threatened to block the appointment of judges on a number of occasions, and then relented on uh, uh, a number of occasions. That's right. That's right. That was the only leverage we really had. We felt, we felt that we were being messed around. We got it on the programme for government, but that uh, basically it was being delayed and unduly delayed by all sorts of forces, some political, some, some Fine Gael, some in the civil service. And so we said, look, we're not going to let any more judges through. And obviously you can't have a judge appointed in the cabinet and, and ministers in, against it. So uh, I mean, someone has to resign, I think, in, in, in that situation. If, if you get up and say this person's unfit to be a minister and then they're, they're put through, you're really under an obligation to resign. So it's very difficult. So we did use the nuclear option there and say we're not going to approve any more judges for a while in order to try and get this, this moving. Uh, and that caused deep resentment. And you can understand why. Uh, uh, but it, it also caused deep fury amongst the judges. They were absolutely irate. Partly because you kept saying disagreeable things about the judiciary, I think. Yeah, I did. I, I said quite a few things about them, which which isn't really approved of. I mean, they are kind of sacred cows and you're not meant to say anything bad about the judges. I'm not quite sure why you're not allowed to criticise them, but you're not supposed to. And they got, and it got, it got very hot and heavy there. Uh, but they said, they made a much more constructive argument as well, which was that I wasn't ever convinced it was true, but that we were delaying justice to to people and to to litigants, and that's powerful. You don't want to be either accused of or, in reality, actually, you know, seeing that the, the courts aren't working properly because justice delayed is justice denied. And and so we did we did sort that out. And despite the fact that the Irish Times was taunting us on a on a on a on the monthly basis by oh, saying yeah, yeah. ten more ten more judges go through despite the minister's objections. And then in the next month, another th- it's up to thirty now he's let through. And that was happening all the time. We did but we did uh, then decide, yeah, we we let some through and but there was it was conditional on the on movement of the bill. And ultimately you got your way on the judicial appointments bill. I mean you had to make some compromises on the bill, but the bill eventually went through the door, but was blocked in the Shannon, or at least delayed in the Shannon, by self-same uh, Mr. McDool, and it eventually ran out of time. It hadn't been signed into law by the time the general election was called, and therefore it fell. But your other great crusade in the judicial, uh, or at least the um, in the area of the administration of, of justice and law enforcement, was the step-aside Garda station, which, as you point out uh, in the book, uh, open shortly after the, uh, the the general election. And I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on the ins and outs of getting Step Aside Garda Station reopened, but it strikes me as, uh, as odd that somebody who should have been such a vocal opponent of pork barrel politics. And uh, I, I'm afraid in preparation for our discussion today, I looked up various interviews of you before the uh, before you entered government, decrying pork barrel politics. So I was somewhat surprised to read uh, about your newfound devotion to pork barrel politics in the chapters dealing with step aside and uh, and uh, and some other things, pleading guilty to uh, pork barrel politics. And at one stage, in in relation to 
uh, an unfavourable opinion poll that you had done in the constituency deciding to double down on pork barrel politics. Yeah, that's, that's, can I just answer? Just I'm not ducking this. I'll deal with this at any length you want in a minute. Just, just you just said having failed on the, on the on the bill on the bill. The bill is apparently being taken up by the new government, but they're taking the chair. They're intending to take the chief justice uh, and put him and plonk him back in the chair. Yes, sorry, that is true. Yes, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's been dropped. And and just to, on that, I'd say they will find it a lot more difficult to do that in the light of what's happening in the Supreme Court now. I just just want to just say it hasn't gone completely. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's, that's all. Yeah. Um, yeah, the this the let's get on to step aside. Yeah, I okay. When I stood for the door, let me let me, every single candidate in the two thousand and sixteen general election, bar Alan Shatter and maybe uh, Alex White in my constituency, and particularly me, it's fair to say, said if we get back in, we will campaign for the reopening of Step Aside Garda Station. That applied to Catherine Martin. That applied to uh, all of them. I think maybe not to Josie from Madigan, but who was it? Who was it? Who was a? But they all were. And then when they got in, they were champions of it, and they backed it, and they backed it fully. So let's let's. If I'm Port Barrel, you're right. It is Port Barrel. Uh, they're about Port Barrel as well. And I said I would campaign very very hard. I was probably the strongest voice for reopening it because I'd been in opposition when it was closed. And I said I'd campaign for it, and and and, and I made absolutely no, no no bones about it. I also said that I campaigned for the reopening of all 139 Garda stations throughout the country. Ah, yes, but look, let's let's be honest now. The one you were interested in and the one that you made, uh, in, in fact, you say in the book that you raised it on the first day of negotiations on a programme for government with, uh, with Fine Gael. So, you know, I think we should, you can't really cover up your, uh, you know, co- co- you know, you can't you can't really cover it in campaigning for the other 139. Let's face it, it was step aside for you. But let me say, no, no, this this was. But I made it absolutely clear that I would go in there fighting for this. Now, nobody seemed to worry about that during the election. But when I started going into negotiations and saying I want that, they said this is outrageous. You're actually fulfilling your promises to your electorate. You're actually saying you're going to you're you're trying to do what you promised you'd do. But what about your promises not to engage in pork barrel politics? This wasn't this was this was this was not inconsistent with that. What it was doing was saying in my constituency, when I'm involved in a really big subject and I can bring this to the I can bring this to national politics, I'm not going to abandon you guys. And that would have been a a complete and utter deception, and they would have turned on me as well. And what you're saying is it was self-interest. Of course it was, but it was also right, and it had to be done. And don't forget, you you belittle the fact that there were other stations involved. You know other stations were opened as well as a result of that. Nobody concentrates on the on the fact that there were at least six under other stations opened as pilots, by the way. Nobody ever remembers that. These, these were pilots opened. That they, they were on trial, and they were put into the program for government. So having negotiated in the program, no way was I going to turn my back on it. And it was delivered. And it, it was... It was delivered only with enormous difficulty. Too much energy was put into it because having promised it, then they kind of kind of started messing around with it. And, and it caused great difficulties for me and for Charlie Flanagan as well. And our relationship did, you're right, our relationship did suffer a bit from that because it was a hell of a nuisance for him. And it was an awful bore for me to because it took so long. 
The voters of Dublin, Rathdown, of course, uh, the ungrateful bastards, um, <laughs> responded, responded. And I, I, because I'm bringing some of my kids out to training and step aside, I, I drive past the Garda station there. And at all hours of the day and night, I see uh, Gardy inside, beavering away, protecting the citizens of Step Aside from whatever horrors lurk coming down from the mountains there. But uh, the, 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 the voters of, the, the voters of, of, of Dublin Rathdown uh, trousered this great, uh, uh, this great boon that you had delivered them and, uh, and voted you out at the last general election. And if that, if that sounds brutal, I'm sorry. But, but all, all of the members of the Independent Alliance either lost their seats are decided not to stand again with a hefty suspicion in each case that had they stood, they would have lost, uh, they would have lost their seats. What do you think that says, to step back for a moment and kind of look at the legacy uh, of your, your, your time in government, what do you think that, that, that says about the whole point of it, of, of you guys being in government? Well, I... What we wanted to do was, first of all, to show that independence could be in government, as I said, and independence could be in government, uh, could be in government responsibly and could get things done. I think we said, I said that, and I think, I think we've we've proved that. Um, independents tend to be a fad; they come and go. If we're if we're honest about it, uh, and those who go into government as smaller groups or smaller parties nearly always lose out. And I think you know, I, I think that the first, the first, the first sentence in the book says Finnegall always eat their young and 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 they do and, and what happens there is you know it's happened to the Labour Party it happened to, you know it's happened to the Democratic left it happened to anybody who actually it happened to us who gets into bed with a with a major party but particularly Finnegall usually lose out and lose out very very badly so I I don't feel ashamed of what we've done because we'd never planned for a kind of a century ahead or anything like that we we were taking our chances and we we were embarking on a really big experiment. I mean, it was something never been done before, and we didn't know whether it was going to last or not. We, we wanted it to last a lot, a lot longer, but there was a, a fairly substantial decline in the independent vote last time, uh, which reduced, which would reduce us to, uh, to, to zero. But it was the Independent Alliance who lost their seats, and Catherine Zappone, who was also a minister in government. Catherine Zappone was a surprise because she's kind of stood, stood apart and she was a very good minister. The... Yeah, we lost out, but you know, and, and particularly, sorry, I'll just, I'll just put that off. In uh, Finian McGrath. <laughs> we get him on next week. Uh, okay. When's his uh, book out? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the, the, where were we? Yeah, the, the independence, the independence in the town, in the cities, I, in Dublin in, in particular, particular, I don't think there's a single independent in Dublin now. Uh, I think, I think. I agree. No. No, Maybe he wasn't elected. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's one. I think there might have been uh, there might have been one who was elected and who's now a member of a, a set up a new party. Uh, but I don't think there was a big swing against the independents in Dublin that day. My so I would su- have suffered from that and all sorts of other reasons. But but Boxer Moran was a huge surprise. He he really was expected to get in. Finian and and John might might well have gone in. I don't know. You know we we were all of a certain age. Uh, and Finian and John wanted to retire. I think anyway and, and have a have a real life. So what does it say? It says an experiment would worked. It said that we 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 did four years, I hope, of, of good work and good government. It said that we weren't going to last as a group, and the idea didn't actually wasn't uh, 
wasn't wasn't eternal in any way. But I think it, we we did our job. We did our duty. We formed a government where others were not prepared to to go in, and we didn't bring the government down. Despite you know, um, at the beginning of the government, you were saying, I suspect. No, sorry, maybe you weren't, but I I thought it myself. The government wouldn't last wouldn't last six months, and the media were saying, this is dreadful. What are these crowd doing in there? We actually turned out, and and uh, I don't want to concentrate on that. But after the initial period where we were getting a lot of legitimate flack for being uh, somewhat reckless about what was going on, we actually settled down and, and, were, and were very much part of a, of a cohesive, cohesive government. And uh, I think we proved that that could be done. I think in my defence, what I wrote during that initial period was that having made the jump, there were many predictions around the place uh, at that time that, you know, you would be gone. And I think, you know, as you detail in the book in, you know, in, in great and vivid colour that there were a few times when the government was probably within a hair's breadth of of toppling over. But I thought that at the time, and let's not forget that this was a minority government with the support of Fianna Fáil under the confidence and supply regime. I thought that it was in the interests of all three parties to that government, independence, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, to make it work. Um, and therefore, I did think that that it would last. I had my doubts that you guys actually knew how to operate government um, in terms of things like collective cabinet responsibility and all that sort of thing. And I, I was probably quite critical of your attitude uh, towards that. So you were right. We didn't. We weren't really believers in, in collective cabinet responsibility. In fact, but we did practice it. But look, I, I mean, Shane, we, we I'd, I'd happily talk about it uh, all, all, all evening. But we're up against time, uh, time pressure. Let me ask you one more thing. Um, you, you quote Robert Louis Stevens in the book saying, you know, that it's often better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive and uh, I, I, I detect that sort of disappointment and frustration with the experience of being in government surfacing throughout the book albeit that your authorial voice deals with it with a pretty light hand to the extent that sometimes it all seems like a bit of a lark at, uh, at, at, at times but to bring to a conclusion what would be your advice to anybody, a small party or group of independents in the future who were entering government? I'd say to have limited objectives. Go into government, definitely. It, it, wasn't, it, it was not a disappointment to us at all. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'd say definitely go into government, but go in with limited objectives and make sure that you nail, you nail them down and they come on the programme early and that they're accepted. Um, I, you know... I, we're proud of what we did about of so many things that that we did. We didn't finish some things, but you know, I mean, Finian's what Finian did on disabilities was fantastic. It's 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 now you know everything is virtually disability proofed at this at this stage, and that's thanks to Finian and, and having a minister for disabilities at the cabinet table. Uh, and we're very proud of that, and we're very proud of what John Halligan and Box and Boxer did. And I, I'm, I'm very, they all put their own stamp on it and they didn't bring the government down and they were an integral part and they moved Fine Gael a bit. You know, you, it's, a, it's a big conservative ship, the Fine Gael party, but they moved them a bit in, in certain directions, which was very important. They had to make concessions, which they probably didn't like. And I, you know, I was very pleased with uh, the drink driving. And I'd say for that alone, 
it's worth having been in government for. And I'd say to a small party going in, have a limited objective of that sort of thing. You will achieve it. Get it on the timetable early because you can get things in. In I mean, the drink driving I'm proud of because basically no political party, uh, well, what, sorry, not none of the major political parties were in favour of, were in favour of that. Uh, but they went for it. Uh, and they went for it because there was so much moral pressure on it and because we were in a position to put it through. So I'd say do that. Go for your limited objectives. Have a, don't expect to change the world or turn the, the government upside down. Remember, we, we what we never thought of, I suppose, going in was Finney and I were two. And there were 13 other people around that table or more, actually. And we, it's, you can't expect to actually get everything you want done or to control the cabinet in any way. But you can say, we want the following. And if you don't get the following, you, you're not going to get your stuff through so easily either. Negotiate hard, but also, I say, don't go in the, with the mindset we had, we had, which was basically that uh, we, 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 we were going in not as friends, but as rivals. And we were still rivals when we sat down on that first day. That was a really bad start. You've got to go in determined to be partners uh, and determined to get the radical measures that you that you that you're proposing implemented even in the teeth of the opposition that, that you may have you may have met on the, on the on the journey there I think it's important and I think it can be done and I think you know I think we did it we didn't collapse the government we achieved quite a lot and I'd say to other people go in even with Finnegale even though they even though they they're young I'd go in and do it because you'll be satisfied well Shane, it's a great read in bed with the blue shirts uh presumably available on all sorts of online uh, for now and uh, when the bookshelves are open again I'd urge people to go and, uh, and buy for Christmas thanks very much for your time today Shane thanks Matt thank you very much indeed thanks also to producer Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon on sound we'll talk to you next week <laughs>